Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of kidnapping, murder, and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In early March of 1950, a young woman walked down 13th Street in Vancouver, Washington. The weather was cold and rainy, a typical evening in the area. The woman muttered under her breath, angry at herself for forgetting her umbrella, and tried to pull her white coat up far enough to keep her hair dry. As she turned onto Broadway Street, the woman passed a dark-colored sedan idling at the corner. Before she could register what was happening, two men jumped out of the vehicle, grabbed her, and pinned her arms behind her back. On instinct, the woman flailed and tore herself from their grasp. They hit her in the head, and her ears rang, but instead of cowering, she swung back. She punched one man in the throat, and he doubled over, coughing. The other man stared at her, shocked that she'd knocked down his accomplice. The woman knew she'd only bought herself a moment. She sprinted down Broadway, away from her momentarily stunned attackers. Luckily, she was safe from the men in the dark sedan. As soon as she'd bolted, they had gotten back into their car and fled the scene. Two witnesses called the police, but it had been too dark to get a good look at the woman, the men, or the license plates on the dark sedan. Police put out a request for information about the attackers and their vehicle, but the woman in the white coat never came forward. A week passed with no leads. Authorities all but abandoned the case, and for some inexplicable reason, local newspapers didn't report on it at all. The majority of people in the area were completely unaware of the crime. They didn't realize they had anything to be afraid of, so they carried on as usual. But the dark sedan still lurked through the streets of Vancouver. A pair of nameless monsters sat inside, waiting for the perfect moment to strike again. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our first episode on the 1950 murder of Joanne Dewey. This week, we'll follow law enforcement as they attempt to parse through a crime scene with few solid clues. Next week, we'll discover the truth about the duo who terrorized Vancouver and reconstruct the last night of Joanne Dewey's life. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. On the night of Sunday, March 19th, 1950, a group of nurses made the rounds at St. Joseph's Hospital in Vancouver, Washington. The five-story medical building stood in the center of 12th Street. That Sunday, the moon was new, making the sky particularly dark. The hospital's many yellow-lit windows stood out like beacons in the night. Through them, the silhouettes of dutiful nurses could be seen floating from room to room, caring for patients. One nurse watched over a group of sleeping newborns. The nursery was peaceful, until a shrill scream rang out from the street below, piercing the quiet night. The babies started to sob, but their cries couldn't drown out the sound coming from outside. It was a horrible primal shout, more animal than human. It was the sound a person only makes when they're fighting for their life. People rushed to their windows to figure out what caused the commotion. Three people, two men and a woman, seemed to be wrestling on the sidewalk about 20 yards from the hospital's entrance. A dark sedan idled on the street beside them. But for some reason, no one directly intervened. After a minute or two, the screaming stopped and the vehicle sped away with all three people inside. As the crime was happening at about 11.30 p.m., a witness called Vancouver Police. Vancouver Police, what's your emergency? I am, I'm not really sure what happened, but there was a woman screaming outside. Two men put her in their car and drove away. I I think they might have kidnapped her. What's the location? East 12th Street, just outside St. Joseph's. We'll be there right away. Soon after receiving the report, Vancouver Police Sergeant Carl Forsbeck and Officers Hal Edmonds and Frank Irwin arrived at the scene. A group of shaken witnesses gathered on the sidewalk. What happened here? It looked like a woman got kidnapped. I I don't know why nobody came to help her. I, I don't know why I didn't. Can you describe any of the people involved? I can. It was hard to tell, but I think the men were a little shorter than average. They were driving a dark-colored car, a sedan, a Volkswagen, or a Buick, I think. Hmm. Anything else? The woman was wearing a coat. It might have been tan, maybe red. 
Could you tell if they were from around here? Anybody. They must have come from out of town, but I yelled at the guys and told them to leave that girl alone. One of them said she was his wife, so I let it go. Didn't think it was any of my business. You think it could have been a domestic dispute? It's possible. No way. Not the way she was screaming. The witnesses disagreed about the nature of the crime. Some thought it had to be a kidnapping, but multiple onlookers had heard one of the men say the woman was his wife. This was enough for many people to ignore the commotion altogether, because at the time, domestic violence was considered a personal issue. Neighbors and law enforcement rarely got involved. But the description of the woman's screams made investigators think twice. The man could have been lying, or the woman could be stuck with a very dangerous husband. With this in mind, officers surveyed the area. They found a silver hairpin, a brown button, and a leather strap that looked to have been broken off of a purse. These items were all consistent with the physical struggle witnesses described. The sergeants also found an empty bottle of Olympia brand beer next to where the dark sedan had been parked. It seemed likely that at some point during the crime, the bottle had fallen out of the car. Investigators bagged what they assumed were the woman's items, then packaged the beer bottle separately. Hal, take this down to the station. The faster we can lift prints off this bottle, the better. Will do. The pieces of evidence were few, but they were promising. A fingerprint on the beer bottle could lead directly to the culprits. Unfortunately, in 1950, local police departments often sent prints to the FBI for analysis. The process could take weeks, and detectives couldn't just wait around in the meantime. While Hal took the bottle to the station, Frank and Carl considered their next moves. First, they radioed backup officers and asked them to keep an eye out for the dark sedan. If the vehicle was still in Vancouver, they would find it. Next, Frank and Carl walked to St. Joseph's. The sergeants had no identifying information about the missing woman, but they knew she'd been close to the hospital. Perhaps, they reasoned, she'd been going into work as a nurse or a secretary. Investigators spoke to the hospital staff. Everyone had heard the terrifying screams, but nobody knew the woman's identity. Only one thing was certain. She couldn't have been coming in for a shift that night because every employee was accounted for. With that, officers were at a dead end. They drove through Vancouver searching for the dark sedan, but they found nothing. The vehicle and everyone inside it had disappeared. The next morning, March 20th, Vancouver Police Chief Harry Diamond got a call from the Sheriff's Department. The Sheriff's deputy told him that a frantic older woman had come in to file a missing person report. He believed the woman's daughter might have been the victim of the previous night's kidnapping, and she was on her way to the station to see the hairpin, button, and purse strap found at the scene. Harry gathered the evidence and sat at his desk. He watched the clock and wrung his hands, dreading the possibility that a mother had lost a daughter in the city he was supposed to protect. After a few painstaking minutes, the woman shuffled into his office. Her dark hair accentuated the paleness of her face. She sat across from the police chief, trying but failing to hold back tears. 
I'm sorry. There's nothing to apologize for. I know this must be very difficult, Mrs... Anna Dewey. Mrs. Dewey, tell me what's happened. My daughter Joanne was supposed to come home last night, but she never showed up. I really think something awful must have happened. Slow down, Mrs. Dewey. I need you to give me as much information as you can about your daughter's whereabouts. Okay. She lives in Portland. Last night she went out with a friend to see a movie at the Paramount Theater. After that, she took a Greyhound bus across the river into Vancouver. She was supposed to get another bus from there to Meadow Glade, where my husband and I live, but she missed the last one for the night. She called me around 11.15 and asked if I could come pick her up, but uh, I was working late, and I told her to walk over to St. Joseph's. One of the nurses there, Miss Krull, is our neighbor. I figured Joanne could sleep at the hospital and Miss Kroll could drive her home this morning, but I don't think... I don't think she made it to the hospital at all. Okay. I'm gonna need you to take a look at a few things we found at the scene. <laughs> all right. Do any of these items look familiar? The strap could have come from her purse and... Oh, God. That's her hairpin. That's definitely hers. <gasps> <laughs> Vancouver police now had a name for the missing woman, Joanne Dewey. She was 18 years old and, according to her mother, unmarried. The man had lied about being her husband, probably because he knew that claim would make it easier to abduct her. With this knowledge, police re-interviewed the witnesses they'd spoken to the night before. Nobody knew Joanne Dewey, much less anyone who would want to hurt her, it was unclear if Joanne was familiar with her attackers or if the crime had been totally random. Then one officer remembered something that others didn't. One week before Joanne's kidnapping, another woman had also been attacked by two men in a dark sedan. This woman had only been identified by her white coat. Police didn't know how to get in touch with her, but they put out another public plea for her to come forward. She had survived the men's assault. She might be the only person in Vancouver who could identify Joanne's kidnappers. Up next, officers search for the woman in the white coat and hone in on a man who had a questionable relationship with Joanne Dewey. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast, and I am thrilled to tell you about a new limited series I'm hosting just in time for Father's Day. It's called Devious Dads, and it introduces you to some of the most feared, fraudulent, and fatal fathers in history. Every Sunday on Spotify, discover the men who started out as role models and ended up becoming real-life criminals— like Wall Street financier Bernie Madoff, whose billion-dollar Ponzi scheme destroyed countless families, including his own. Or Marvin Gaye Sr., whose envy and resentment towards his son's successful music career drove him to murder. Each episode of Devious Dads has been handpicked from shows across the ParCast network, shining a light on the men who are far more wicked than wise. This summer, catch a glimpse of the frightening side of fatherhood. 
follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. At about 11.30 p.m. on Sunday, March 19th, 1950, a woman was abducted outside the entrance of St. Joseph's Hospital in Vancouver, Washington. Police later identified her as 18-year-old Joanne Dewey. She'd been on her way to meet a neighbor at the hospital when the two men forced her into their dark-colored sedan. Vancouver authorities weren't sure if the crime had been random or if Joanne knew her attackers. A similar crime had occurred a week before, and the victim, a woman identified only by her white coat, had escaped. This seemed to suggest that the kidnapping was indiscriminate, and Joanne had simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. If this was the case, it would make it very difficult to track down the perpetrators. Officers needed the woman in the white coat to make a statement, but she didn't come forward. In all likelihood, she couldn't bring herself to recount the trauma of her attack. This left detectives floundering. They put out a request for information about dark-colored sedans in the Vancouver area. Soon their office phones were flooded with tips, most of which led nowhere. However, one call stood out from the rest. The chief of Portland police phoned the detectives who had been assigned the case and gave them a warning. I'm going to tell you one thing, and people are going to say I'm not being fair. All right. You ever heard of the Wilson brothers? I'm afraid not. Bunch of criminals. Some live on my side of the river, some over on yours. I can't tell you they're guilty, but I can't tell you they're innocent either. Keep an eye on them, okay? You have their names? There's a whole group of them. Rassy, Grant, Glenn, Terman, and Utah. The detectives wrote down the names, but the lead seemed like a long shot. The Wilson brothers were known criminals. Three of them had kidnapped two women at gunpoint once before. So it was possible they had tried to do it again, but simple suspicion was not the same thing as evidence of their involvement. Plus, a far better lead soon came to light. On Tuesday, March 21st, investigators interviewed Jackie Krull, the daughter of the neighbor Joanne was supposed to meet at St. Joseph's. Jackie had information about Joanne's family and about a man who had been involved with the 18-year-old. They're Seventh-day Adventists. Practically everybody in Meadowglade is. Real serious church people, you know? Right. But Joanne isn't really like that. About the time she turned 16, she started getting sick of all the rules and didn't like church so much anymore. Didn't help that the deacon was coming on to her. What? Oh, sure. I think it made her uncomfortable at first, but eventually she swooned. He told her he'd leave his wife and marry her as soon as she turned 18. Did he actually get a divorce? 
Of course not. He was just trying to get Joanne in his bed. I'm not sure how it ended between them, but I know that deacon isn't the kind of man that should be working at a church. What's his name? Donald Strawn. Detectives immediately set off towards Meadow Glade, a tiny town about 15 miles from Vancouver. They found Donald Strawn at his home near the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It was late in the evening, and the deacon answered the door in his pajamas. Donald invited the officers inside. The group sat around a creaky wooden table. The deacon's young son watched television in another room. Do you know Joanne Dewey? Of course I do. What was the nature of your relationship with her? We were friendly. Just friendly? We had, well, I don't know if you'd call it an affair. We never did anything more than kiss, but I was sweet on her, I'll tell you that. Were you planning on leaving your wife to be with her? (sighs) I considered it, but I realized it was a terrible idea. Would have ruined my reputation at the church, and it would have made Joanne look bad too. She deserves better than that. When's the last you saw her? Mm, About three weeks ago. We broke things off for good. Who broke it off? It was mutual. So you weren't upset? Well, I sure wish things could have been different. Where were you on the night of her kidnapping? I was at home with my son. I don't know a thing. And I'd tell you if I did, I swear. I still love her. I want her to be safe. Officers left Donald's home feeling suspicious. The deacon's relationship with Joanne was clearly inappropriate. Whether he loved her or not, she had only been 16 when they met. He spent two years grooming her before their relationship finally ended. Moreover, Donald had a weak alibi. The only person that could corroborate it was his young son, who could have been convinced to lie. Vancouver police continued to search for more information about the deacon. Over multiple interviews with Donald, they learned that he had been obsessed with Joanne. He originally told police that he and Joanne had agreed to end their relationship three weeks prior. But every day since then, he'd called her phone. The breakup no longer looked as mutual as Donald made it out to be. He couldn't let Joanne go, even though she wanted to move on. Police had to consider the possibility that the deacon tried to get Joanne back by force. Donald Strawn had a motive and a shaky alibi, but police didn't jump on the opportunity to make an arrest. Officers couldn't prove he'd been in Vancouver on the night of the kidnapping, and perhaps more importantly, he didn't drive a dark-colored sedan. Days passed, and detectives still hadn't located the notorious vehicle. Vancouver locals had been terrified of the car and the two men in it for four days, and their fear quickly turned into frustration. The police department moved too slowly. Civilians felt the need to take matters into their own hands. A group of volunteer searchers took a map and divided the city of Vancouver into 26 equally sized squares. Members of the search party were assigned to do deep dives into different areas on the grid. Although none of the searchers said it out loud, they all knew that they weren't looking for a dark sedan or even for Joanne Dewey herself. Too much time had passed since the 18-year-old disappeared. The unspoken reality was crushing. It was too late to save her. With this truth weighing heavily on their hearts, 
the people of Vancouver set out to find Joanne Dewey's body. Within two days, the search party collected a small trove of potential evidence. One furious citizen brought their findings to Chief Harry Diamond. With all due respect, Chief, and to be frank, that isn't very much, I can't believe you and your sergeants didn't find any of this. Not one, but two bloodied shirts. License plates dumped near the river. You know the Vancouver General Store mysteriously burned down on Sunday night, right? Have you even considered that these things might be connected? I appreciate your dedication to the cause. We'll gladly accept this evidence for analysis. Well, get to analyzing. Every hour you waste is an hour that those monsters are on the loose. Pressure mounted on the Vancouver police. Still, the case wasn't as clear-cut as locals wanted to believe. The two shirts they'd found hadn't been bloodied at all. One was stained with lipstick, and the other with shoe polish. As for the general store, the timing appeared to be a coincidence. Firefighters sifted through the rubble and ash, but there were no human remains and no evidence of foul play. Only one of the search party's findings led anywhere. Detectives ran the license plates found near a lake and discovered that they were registered to Grant Wilson, one of the brothers the Portland police chief had mentioned. Grant Wilson lived in Camas, Washington, about 14 miles east of Vancouver. Officers might have driven to his home to investigate this lead further, but something more pressing got in their way. Anna Dewey, Joanne's mother, phoned the station. A drunk man had called her and claimed to have information about her missing daughter. What followed was a mess for everyone involved. When Anna called, the Clark County Sheriff, Earl Anderson, was in the middle of a celebration. Two of his detectives had recently arrested a group of shoplifters, and to mark the occasion, the three of them took down an entire fifth of whiskey while they were on the clock. Sheriff Anderson had two options. He could admit to, and probably face major backlash for, drinking on the job, or he could try his best to respond to the call. He chose the latter. The sheriff swerved erratically as he drove to meet Anna Dewey and the man that allegedly had information on Joanne Dewey's kidnapping. A few minutes later, he stumbled to the door. Inside, he found Anna standing alongside Colin Cree, a Vancouver man who the sheriff knew as a registered sex offender. It's unclear whether or not Colin actually had information about Joanne's kidnapping. If he did, he hadn't yet told Anna what he knew, and he didn't get the chance to. The moment he and Sheriff Anderson made eye contact, a drunken brawl broke out. Anna stood to the side, terrified, and begged the men to stop fighting. If Colin had information about her daughter, she had to hear it. But Sheriff Anderson was too drunk to care. He grabbed Colin and threw him outside. Anna chased them into the front yard, and moments later, a Washington State patrolman turned the corner into the neighborhood. He pulled up just in time. In the midst of the brawl, Anna Dewey had been hit and fell down onto the lawn. Hey! Hey! What's going on? For God's sake, stop it! Sheriff, what's the problem? I responded to a call. Are you drunk? The guy was in our house. 
She invited me inside! Oh my god. Sheriff, get in the car! Hey, I don't take orders from- Get in the car! The patrolman broke up the fight and did his best to cover for Sheriff Anderson, but the damage was done. The next day, a bruised Anna Dewey, her husband, and a number of neighbors appeared at the county commissioner's meeting. They recounted the drunken skirmish and called for Sheriff Anderson to be fired immediately. Unfortunately, getting rid of the sheriff wasn't that easy. He had been elected to his position. Removing him would require a vote, which would take valuable time away from the investigation into Joanne's kidnapping. However, there was another option. Authorities charged Sheriff Anderson with voluntary intoxication and public disturbance. He kept his office for the time being, but if he was convicted, he'd have to be replaced. This was a small victory for the Dewey family. They believed that if a more competent sheriff took over, Joanne would be found. Her parents still imagined that she was out there somewhere, alive. But the very next day, their hopes were crushed for good. On Sunday, March 26, 1950, a man called the police. With a shaky voice, he told officers that he and his friends had taken a weekend fishing trip to the St. Martin's Spring Resort in Carson, Washington. The group had been hiking alongside a stream when they stumbled on a corpse floating in the water. Coming up, officers recovered Joanne Dewey's body and tried to narrow down their possible suspects. Now, back to the story. Ever since 18-year-old Joanne Dewey had been kidnapped on March 19, 1950, Vancouver police struggled to get a handle on the case. They had a few possible leads, including a shifty church deacon and a group of thieving brothers. But trouble within the police department diverted attention away from the investigation. That changed on Sunday, March 26th, when a group of men stumbled on a body at the St. Martin's Spring Resort in Carson, Washington. One man called the police. His voice trembled as he said, I saw a lot of corpses when I was in the war, but nothing like this. All beaten to hell. The body, he told police, was nude, female, and horribly bruised. Carson authorities knew about the report that Anna Dewey had filed about a week before. They called Vancouver officers to tell them that their missing person might have been found. Vancouver authorities sped to Carson. The St. Martin's Resort was easy to access, but detectives had to take a back road to find the stream where the body had been dumped. They pulled the corpse out of the water. The cold temperatures had kept the body almost perfectly preserved. There was no question that it was Joanne Dewey, and there was no question that she'd been murdered. Officers searched the area for footprints or tire tracks, but a week of rainy Washington weather had washed any marks away. The scene had little to offer besides the body itself. However, an autopsy did reveal something interesting. Joanne's stomach contained a partially digested meat substitute. Only one diner in Portland served this specific food. Using this information, officers were able to establish a rough timeline. Joanne ate dinner, saw a movie, 
then took a Greyhound bus to Vancouver. She was kidnapped at approximately 11.30 p.m. and probably died one to two hours later. Furthermore, Joanne had suffered extensive injuries, including bruises and lacerations. Her body showed evidence of post-mortem sexual assault. Despite all this, the medical examiner found that she hadn't died of physical trauma, but of carbon monoxide poisoning. Based on the state of Joanne's body, it seemed likely that the kidnappers had planned to rape her. Officers reasoned that her death by carbon monoxide poisoning must have been an accident, a result of a defective or damaged exhaust pipe on the dark sedan so many witnesses described. Lastly, investigators decided that whoever dumped Joanne's body behind the resort must have been very familiar with the area. Only someone who had been there before would know how to navigate the long, winding back roads. As soon as news of the body reached Oregon, the chief of Portland police called Harry Diamond in Vancouver. He asked for updates about the fingerprints found on the Olympia brand beer bottle. What's the deal with the prints? FBI couldn't find any matches in the federal system. Remember those brothers I told you about? The Wilsons? How could I forget? I only got one set of their prints. Terman, one of the older ones. But it's worth a shot. I can have them checked against what you found on the bottle. <sighs> okay. The Portland Police Department sent copies of Terman Wilson's fingerprints, along with the prints found on the bottle of Olympia beer, to an expert for analysis. While they waited for results, Vancouver detectives looked further into Terman Wilson. He was 24 years old and employed at a wool mill near Vancouver. Investigators figured it wouldn't hurt to ask him a few questions, so they drove to the mill. When police arrived, Terman was nowhere to be found. Excuse me, you the manager. Sure am. I'm Sergeant Carl Forsbeck with the Vancouver Police Department. I was hoping to speak with Terman Wilson. Oh, sorry. No can do. He actually quit a couple of days ago. Huh, any idea why? Don't know. He stopped showing up last week, then his brother called and told me Terman wasn't coming back. Said he moved to California. Which brother? I think he said his name was Grant. Carl immediately recognized the name. Grant Wilson was the person whose license plates had been found near the river in Vancouver. The situation was strange for a number of reasons. Firstly, it was unclear why Terman had suddenly decided to relocate. He didn't give any notice, and he never called his boss himself. Instead, he asked his brother to relay the news for him. Moreover, this was the second time the investigation led police to Grant Wilson. It could have been a coincidence, but some detectives were starting to get suspicious. Nevertheless, officers didn't follow the trail. They were still waiting on the fingerprint results. Until then, they couldn't be sure Terman Wilson was involved. In the meantime, authorities followed up on a number of tips. A taxi driver had been seen loitering around where Joanne worked, but police quickly cleared him. A sheriff from another county found a blood-stained shirt off of a main road, but it turned out to be the result of a traffic accident. One tip led officers to a man who drove a black Buick sedan, the interior of which had been dirtied by blood and hair. It certainly looked like a crime scene, 
but the owner of the vehicle insisted that he was an avid hunter and the mess had come from a deer. A quick test confirmed his story. For Vancouver police, the investigation felt like one failure after another. There were only two real avenues to go down. Continue looking into Donald Strawn, the church deacon, or turn their focus entirely on the Wilson brothers. The results of Terman Wilson's fingerprint analysis would decide for them. What's it say? Specimen A and specimen B are not a match. Seriously? Seriously. Terman Wilson didn't touch that beer bottle. Oh. With that, the officers felt they had no choice but to turn their attention back to Donald Strawn. He certainly had a motive, but there was nothing to physically tie him to the crime. Plus, all the evidence seemed to point to an unknown attacker, not to someone Joanne was familiar with. Even so, it's unclear why the Vancouver Police Department didn't analyze Donald's fingerprints. They might have assumed that because Seventh-day Adventists abstain from alcohol, the beer couldn't have belonged to the deacon. Then, on Thursday, March 30th, 11 days after the crime, Harry Diamond received yet another call from the Portland police chief. Got something for you up here, Harry. Well, don't keep me in suspense. A tan Pontiac coupe, human bloodstains, a button, and pieces of broken teeth. Holy smokes. I think it might be your case. I don't know, chief. We're looking for a dark sedan. They could have switched cars. Plus, there's fingerprints all over the trunk. If they match Joanne's, you'll know she was back there. We didn't take her prints. Why not? I don't know. It, it didn't seem important. Not at the time, at least. We already knew who she was, and I was more focused on making sure her parents could give her a proper burial. Jesus, Harry. Exhume her body if you have to. You have to get those prints. Right. We'll do. The vehicle was a breakthrough piece of evidence, but the Vancouver Police Department's own negligence and mishandling limited its scope. Until authorities could exhume Joanne's body, take her fingerprints, and compare them with those found inside the trunk, they couldn't prove she'd been inside the Pontiac at all. Luckily, law enforcement could still glean some important information from the car— they ran the Pontiac Coupe's license plates and found that the car was registered to an address in Camas, Washington, under a name they were getting very familiar with. The bloodied vehicle belonged to Grant Wilson. Vancouver authorities did a deep dive into Grant's background. He had a family, a steady job, and a beautiful home. His neighbors knew him as a devout churchgoer, and he was the only brother of the Wilson Bunch who had no criminal record. Of all the Wilsons, he seemed like the least likely culprit. Yet his name kept showing up. Police drove to Grant's home and knocked on the door. When he answered and saw the uniformed officers, his face fell. Authorities asked Grant about the chain of evidence that brought them to his door. The license plates found near the river, his brother's sudden relocation, and most importantly, the Pontiac that contained human remains. Grant looked somber but remained quiet, offering no explanation for himself or his older brother. Finally, Grant met the investigator's gaze. His eyes were full of tears. 
He cleared his throat and said, Gentlemen, I have a great decision to make. May I talk to my pastor before answering your questions? Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of Joanne Dewey's story. We'll hear Grant Wilson's statements and discover what really happened on March 19, 1950. For more information on Joanne Dewey, among the many sources we used, we found the murder of Joanne Dewey in Vancouver, Washington by Pat Gelada extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Solved Murders was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Jen Wong, Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, Ellie Schiff, and Dan Velasquez. Solve Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hey there, Carter again. As we close out, here's a reminder to check out my new podcast limited series, Devious Dads. For 10 weeks, we're exposing the men who were far more flawed than fatherly, ruining anyone who stood in their way, even their own families. Follow Devious Dads free only on Spotify.